The Jewish Views on the Tory Party Conference. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson tells them Israel and the UK should stand and work together. Hidden in plain sight, Professor Nathan Abrams talks about Jews and Jewishness in British film, TV and pop culture. And the Jewish Deaf Association give us an insight into their tremendous work. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has insisted that the UK and Israel must stand and work together. In a keynote address to the largest ever Conservative Friends of Israel reception at the party's annual conference, he also heaped praise on Shimon Peres and said it had been a privilege to attend the former president's funeral. In his address, the Israeli ambassador Mark Regev described the new Prime Minister Theresa May as an ally of Israel and the Jewish community. Jewish leaders are urging the Labour Party to go one step further and expel a key ally of Jeremy Corbyn. Jackie Walker was removed as vice chair of the left-wing Momentum Group. She'd previously been suspended from Labour after controversial comments about the Holocaust, but is now reinstated. Ms Walker, who is herself Jewish, had previously suggested that Jews finance the slave trade and had questioned why Holocaust Memorial Day did not include other genocides, when in fact it does. The Prince of Wales made a poignant visit to the final resting place in Jerusalem of his grandmother, Princess Alice of Greece. Prince Charles brought flowers from his Scottish home, Birkhall, which he laid at the crypt in the church on the Mount of Olives. Princess Alice, who died in 1969, was the mother of the Duke of Edinburgh. The prince had been attending the funeral of Shimon Peres. It's being reported that Apple is developing the next iPhone in Israel. The company employs 800 people in its Herzliya office, where an anonymous worker apparently claimed it will be called the iPhone 8, skipping the name iPhone 7S. Apple's CEO has acknowledged that the Herzliya office is the company's second largest research and development centre. And finally, with less than a month to go until Sukkot, the annual journey of dozens of rabbis to the Calabria region of southern Italy has begun. They're there to get lime green citron fruits, or etrog as they're known in Hebrew. The fruit is notoriously hard to grow, but in that part of Italy, you apparently get the best ones. For the sport now, we go over to Andrew. Thanks, Viv. Hendon A manager David Garbaz believes his side can not only win the Maccabi Football Premier Division title but can also achieve it by going through the whole season unbeaten. Having seen his side claim their fourth consecutive win, he said, It's early on in the season, but the thought has crossed my mind. As Israel gets set to play their next two 2018 World Cup qualifiers, the Italian Football Association has been fined €27,000 after some of their supporters made a Nazi salute during the Israeli national anthem at last month's World Cup qualifier between the two countries. And finally, Manchester United manager Jose Mourinho has paid tribute to Shimon Perez. The special one visited Israel as Chelsea manager in 2005 when he was a guest of the Perez Centre for Peace and wrote on his Instagram account, RIP Mr Shimon Perez. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest from the world of Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave, and let's start off as we always do with a look through your copy of the Jewish News for this week. Joining me in the studio to go through it is editor Richard Ferrer and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Rich, let's start off with the front page. The novelty of the new look still hasn't quite worn off yet, but what is there on the front page this week? Second week of the New Look Jewish News, front page headline, MPs call for Perez tribute. Every once in a while, a statesman of international significance passes away and MPs, cross-party MPs, decide to maybe not do PMQs that week, but instead do a debate, which is pretty much a tribute. The last time they did it was for Nelson Mandela in 2013. This week, we're carrying the story about how party members from the Labour Party, the DUP and the Conservatives are among those pushing for a parliamentary debate in honour of the great Shimon Peres. They want to express their accolades and appreciation for the man, talk about his push for peace. In the week or so that's passed since his passing, I think it's really hit home his legacy and quite what people felt about him and the influence he had on the Middle East. It would be great to see half an hour of Commons time spent on MPs on all sides of the House talking about that legacy. And that's what feels so unbelievable, Fran, is that I think that when last week when the news broke, yes, okay, we were partly expecting it because he was of a certain age and also he had just suffered a massive stroke, but it hadn't really sunk in, had it? It's exactly the same when one loses someone close to them. It doesn't quite set in at first, but now a week has passed. It almost feels as if reality is setting in. And of course, all of the great tributes we have heard about him already he was an incredible individual. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is the week for analysis and looking back and remembering the great statesman that he was and he really did do so much and he'll be sorely missed. Certainly will. Well, he's not the only story on the front page. Also on the front page this week, look who's talking. Who is talking, Richard? Yeah, listeners may remember that last year we did our first uh, inaugural Israel policy conference. We took over Westminster and we had the great and the good, some really powerful people from all sides of the political fence in Israel, the UK, across Europe, setting the agenda, if you will, for the next 12 months of Israel relations, Israel's relations with the world and British political positions on the Middle East. What we're going to do all over again. And I'm very delighted to announce that Amber Rudd, the new Home Secretary, is going to be making the keynote speech. We've also got Dennis Ross, Michael Oren, who was the former Israeli ambassador to America, Yitzhak Herzog, who's the uh, leader of the uh, Labour opposition in Israel. It's uh, going to be another agenda-setting event in November for the policy community, and hopefully it will shape the policy going forward for the next year or so. When we did it last year, it was all about the Iranian nuclear deal and other issues of, of key importance. This one's going to, I think, be anchored around the uh, United States presidential election and uh, whether it's President Trump or President Clinton they will have just won the election so I think probably US Israel relations are going to take centre stage as much as Israel UK relations big moment I think for us and looking forward to it in November So perhaps you might like to divulge a little bit of how one goes about even organising something like that. I love the idea. You say you take over Westminster. I've just got this vision now of you sitting where John Burko would sit but at the same time What exactly are you hoping to achieve from this? Because obviously you say set out Israel policy for the next year. Technically speaking, I don't think that a humble Jewish newspaper from northwest London has that much influence over Westminster. So what are we hoping and who are you hoping to influence? 
Yeah, it's it's an incredible accolade, actually, for a, a small local newspaper like ours. It takes about a year and a half to organise, which is why we haven't done one in the last 18 months. It's an opportunity for journalists. It's it's a policy community. It's not, unfortunately, for our readers to attend. It's it's more for political figures, journalists, diplomats, etc., to come together, to have talking shops, to have symposiums and debates and, and conferences, and to set, hopefully, an agenda that they can work work forward for the next year or so and that can start to hopefully improve relations between Israel and its allies particularly the US and the UK. Oh here's hoping. Elsewhere in the paper this week Fran I believe that you have been hired to speak as it were to Lord Sugar. Always better to be hired than fired do not think. Um, I wouldn't know. (laughs) Well yes for those of you who are lucky enough to watch the first episode of The Apprentice on Thursday night, it's back now in its 12th series, going from strength to strength. And I was invited along to see Karen, Alan and Claude at the press launch of The Apprentice. Despite doing it for 12 years, Lord Sugar's still really enthusiastic about it. He says actually that this will be the best series yet. Unfortunately, no kosher flavour from the 18 candidates, but we do have obviously Lord Sugar and his right-hand man, Claude Littner, giving that bit of Yiddish, you know, input. I was going to say, I don't think the community can feel too deprived from the Jewish influence over the programme because there is quite a strong Jewish presence there. Yeah, I mean, it's been a few years now since the whole kosher chicken nonsense in Marrakesh. So I'm Still wondering, referring back to that. I know, I'm just wondering if they'll bring back another jewish kind of task, but I'm certainly looking forward to it. And interestingly, Lord Sugar did make the point that in the sort of five years since he's been offering candidates a chance to become his business partner rather than one of his new employees at one of his companies he's actually invested quite a substantial amount of his own money and some of those candidates have gone on to actually turn over their first million 2013's winner Leah Totten is on track to make her first million with her drop in cosmetic surgeries and Tom Pellero the guy who made the sort of the nail care products his firm's generated a turnover of 1.5 million so it's well worth it if you go through the process and actually win well I think I can safely say that we're in the wrong job somehow But there you go. All right. Well, that's obviously on a Thursday evening now on the BBC One. So if you do want to catch the latest series of The Apprentice, there it is. You didn't actually get the chance to speak to him yourself, though. It was a press event. I did actually ask him a question. Oh, Um, what did you ask him? We can't move on until we hear. (laughs) I asked him if he could talk about the mistakes that he made in business, given that he started out as a teenager himself and out the back of a van selling electrical goods that he bought for £50, actually. And he said that, yeah, that absolutely he did, you know, make mistakes. And it's actually through those mistakes that he learned to move forward and that you have to make mistakes in order to succeed. So, I mean, that gives me a lot of hope. Well, there you go. Richard, I think that just before we wrap up this week's paper review, Obviously, this is the second edition of the New Look Jewish News, and you, I'm guessing, have had some feedback on the New Look. What have people been saying? Absolutely. We worked tirelessly on the relaunch, but it wasn't until we presented it to our loyal, cherished, esteemed readers that uh, we finally realised whether or not we got it right. And I've published quite a lot of letters. We got a lot of feedback in the last seven days or so about the relaunch. Predominantly good, apart from the odd email, one of which I've published this week from Liz Hurst. Thank you very much for your feedback, Liz, who says the new print is far too small, even with her reading glasses, and it's a big no from her. 
Liz aside, generally speaking, people are delighted with the new columnists, Nick Ferrari, Samantha Simmons, Majid Nawaz. There a lot of people that have never even seen the paper have picked it up for the first time and have pledged to do so again. Even the red and silver masthead, which I thought was going to be a bugbear for some. I thought a lot of people weren't going to be liking that and wanted a bit more of a blue hue. Uh, even that seems to have gone down well. It's meant to catch their eye and to pick up the paper and it seems to be a device that's working. So generally speaking, I'd say 85, 90% positive with the occasional comment that perhaps we'll be looking to rectify in the weeks to come. Well, I think it is worth noting that, of course, the biggest selling paper in this country indeed does have a red coloured masthead. So you never know, onwards and upwards. That's where we've got to leave it. Thank you both very much indeed. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The New Look Jewish News every Thursday across London or read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. This week, Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson addressed the Tory party conference in Birmingham, affirming his strong stance on Israel. In his speech, Mr Johnson said that the UK and Israel must stand and work together. To discuss this further and to gauge reaction, I've been speaking to Sir Eric Pickles, the chairman of the Conservative Friends of Israel. I started by asking Sir Eric how CFI reacted to Mr Johnson's speech. Boris has a long track record of supporting Israel and it's good to have somebody who understands the importance of a democracy in the middle of the most troubled regions of the world. And I thought what he said was actually was quite moving and uh, particularly when he was quoting from Mr Perez various little bon mots. It, you know, it was, it was a nice, nice occasion. And please do mention that about quoting the late Shimon Peres, because there might be some who might be a bit surprised that Boris was quoting him, because technically, and politically party speaking, they were, of course, not on the same page. Why do you think it was that Shimon Peres made such an impact on perhaps both sides? Because obviously Shimon Peres was more associated with Kadima, which is more liberal, and conservatives are obviously more in line, politically speaking, with the Likud party. We took a view a long time ago that we will be conservative friends of Israel, which means we're not supporting one particular party. And it does mean that right from the very beginning, we've had excellent relationships with Likud and with Labour and with everybody in between and beyond. And I think that is important. I had an opportunity of meeting the great man as early as 1980 when I was a young Conservative leader. And I think it's a mark of, of, of the man. I think it's always been pretty good with young people, for indeed I was young then. Still young, sir. Uh, still bless young. your heart. Bless <laughs> your heart. We'll get you into spec servers later on. Um, that he took a lot of time to sit and to explain. I met him, I met to let Mr. Rabin. And, you know, you've got a kind of a feeling that you're among people that were something a bit special. Now, if I'm absolutely honest, I've only ever felt that in the presence of, uh, say, President Reagan, uh, Margaret Thatcher, and you, you feel as though you were in the, the presence of something very special that had a view beyond a generation. Why do you think it is that the wider world has such a blinkered view of Israel? Now, I know that's obviously a big question to answer, but it's amazing how many people maybe don't see the good in it. And because, why do you think that is? Because they've not seen it. 
That's why we uh, spend a lot of money and a lot of time in getting opinion formers to see Israel. And, you know, whether you're dealing with a senior cabinet minister or whether you're dealing with a young uh, youth worker, all of them say the same thing at one point. It might be a stroll along the beach at Tel Aviv. It might be visiting iTech. And it's this. It's so normal. It is like home. It is a Western democracy. It is a place that believes in freedom of speech. It believes in the freedom of the individual. Israeli society is argumentative. It is. It can be quarrelsome. It's just like how normal people behave. There's no leadership cult of the prime minister or the president. It's about people working together to earn a living to bring up their kids in as much safety as they can get. Let's take it back to the conference. The Tory party conference obviously has been and gone this week, just gone. And CFI, I believe, made quite an impact. And am I right in thinking you even had people queuing to get into CFI events of some description? Yes, we, we have an annual reception, which a senior politician speaks. This time it was Boris. Mark, the new Israeli ambassador, uh, spoke. And Mark Regev, yes. Yeah, Mark Regev, yeah. And also Greg Clark, I'll give you his surname as well. <laughs> and uh, Sashi David spoke. And it was packed. It was the largest room we could book. There were over 500 people there. There were probably another... 150, 160 that couldn't get in. And I'm told that an organisation to discuss Palestinian rights had a meeting in a, in a hotel, and they, I think there were about 10 people there, half of which were members of, of uh, Conservative Friends of Israel's staff. Goodness. So that must have been great for you to see as the chair of CFI, that kind of reaction. It always is because I think we've always kind of engaged in Israel. We've not engaged in the different politics of Israel. And we've always wanted to stress and for people to understand the modernity. People tend to think in terms of the conflict and of settlements and of the relationship with neighbours. All those things are important. But this is a modern dynamic economy. All too often, the problem that we get is that members even of the Jewish community say that they, they express their concerns and their fears that Israel might not be around in future generations if people don't wake up and see what's before. You've already listed some of the things that you believe is great with Israel. But do you have any concerns that if attitudes don't change from some that Israel won't be here? No. Not for a second. Israel will be there. I think it is impossible not to believe that a Jewish state will be there a hundred years from now as we move towards the centenary of the Balfour Declaration. I think we'll be celebrating in a hundred years' time for, for sure. People don't understand the number of Israeli Arabs that there are. People don't understand that they have the same rights as uh, Jewish citizens of Israel, that they have votes. And I think that's something I'm going to want to stress as we move throughout this year and beyond. This is a proper plural democracy. Just finally... What would you say is next? What do you see as being the vision of the future for relations between Israel and the UK? Because obviously 
Prime Minister May has made it very clear where she stands as far as Israel's concerned, and she doesn't look like she's going anywhere anytime soon. So how do you see the future panning out between the two countries? Well, clearly with Brexit, we're going to be looking to negotiate trade relations between our countries. I would hope that Israel will be top of the list. We have to bear in mind that our pride and joy that National Health Service is peculiarly dependent upon Israeli patents and Israeli medicines, recently put in a question, and the best testament of the government was that Israeli patents and medicines represent hundreds of millions of prescriptions. Sir Eric Pickles, the chairman of Conservative Friends of Israel, speaking to me there and giving his reaction to Boris Johnson's speech, amongst other things, at the Tory party conference. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive will be joined by actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of Mitzvah Day Laura Marks and Rabbi Morris Michaels. They'll be discussing final resting places. Now, don't worry, it's not quite as morbid as it sounds. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Sue Sippin from the Jewish Deaf Association about the work her organisation does. But first, Jews are often associated with the silver screen, but to what extent is their involvement? That's something that Professor Nathan Abrams has uncovered in his latest book, entitled Hidden in Plain Sight, Jews and Jewishness in British Film, TV and Pop Culture. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more about it for us by speaking to him. Kate started by asking Professor Abrams to tell us a bit about the academic side of the work that he does and what exactly it is that he teaches his students at Bangor University. They study the history and theory of how films have been made and how to make films. So we introduce them to classic films from the past, how to analyse those films, and also how to place those films in a historical context. And hopefully, if they want to, they can use that information to go on and make their own films. And is that an academic pursuit? Do you sort of take parts and most people you think you go to a film and you watch it with very much a sort of a as a diversionary interest rather than as an academic pursuit. How do you sort of make it into an academic one? Well, it's no different from English literature. I mean, people read books for fun, but we analyse and scrutinise those texts and explore the deeper levels, why those books might be popular, what symbols are in those books. And similarly, I actually trained as a historian. So the way I approach film is if historians like to use books and diaries and newspapers and journals, I personally use films as a means to explore the past. And that probably has more validity because so many more people watch films than might read the equivalent book or newspaper. Added on that, though, is the extra problems. We also have to analyse how it looks. So we might bring in criticism or theory from theatre and art history and how it sounds. And then we might look to musicology. So all in all, it's, it's extremely academic pursuit if done properly. And you have a particular interest in, in the Jewish side of film. I mean, when, when we think of Jewish films, we sort of think of you know, sort of directors of Woody Allen and others. Do you look at the characters that, that, that are Jewish or the films themselves, or do you tend to look at how Jews are portrayed? Well, both. I mean, in my previous book, The New Jew in Film, uh, exploring Jewishness and Judaism in contemporary cinema, we looked at who played 
a particular character because that gives you a clue as to how we're meant to understand it. And then we look at how those characters are portrayed in films, which genres they appear in, what the storylines are. But what my particular interest now is to look at those films where it's not immediately obvious that they're Jewish. So I'm writing a big book on Stanley Kubrick, who was a Jewish director, and no one would say at first sight that his films strike one as Jewish films. However, if one looks beneath the surface and explores characters and plots and ideas and imagery, symbolism, then perhaps we can find a Jewish theme running beneath the surface. For listeners who aren't as familiar with the Jewish themes or or changes, what would you say are the greatest changes in the way Jews, Judaism and I suppose almost the the stereotype Jews are portrayed? Have there been changes and what have you noticed over the years? There's been many more of them, number one. So if we look as a global phenomenon, there are just more films, I would say, about Jews than possibly has been before and they're coming out with increasing frequency and it's not just an american phenomenon we see this in europe and latin america and israel would be another case in point and they're much more confident there is less of an attempt to explain jewishness to the wider world it's less apologetic it's more you know to put it crudely we're here and we don't need to justify our existence anymore and even if we took genres like the holocaust that's becoming much more graphic in a way, Son of Saul or The Grey Zone, really do look at the mechanics of murder in a way that perhaps haven't been explored previously. Overall, this, this displays a confidence that I think that's that's where the biggest change would could be seen. Yes, I mean, we, did, we tend to feel that Jews are much more out there. I mean, everybody is out there. You are, whoever you are, you stand up and you're, you're proud of it. But does that lose a depth? I mean, I was thinking there's an American series, Transparent, probably many of our listeners haven't seen it at the moment, but it follows a Jewish family. But the Judaism is so watered down, it's almost just like um, a bit of a label and the cliches are what remains, you know, the, the food or the, you know, the, the, the temple. or It doesn't seem to have a depth to it anymore. Or is that, is that just a, the odd series? I don't know. I think that's an unfair characterization. I've watched all three series, and what strikes me about Transparent is just how Jewy it is. It's like it's, it's none of these characters have to be Jewish, but they are. And the full range of Jews that we get in there. I mean, in the past it was Tevya or or, or Leon the pig farmer. Uh, here we've got. Uh, you know, a whole range of Jews of different beliefs, practices, sexualities, and I, I find actually that. You know, the Judaism that's probably reflected in there isn't necessarily watered down, but it's probably more of what's on offer in the United States and, and thus appears different to us in Britain, where we have a much more limited set of options and, you know, really is quite restricted to, you know, several choices for the mainstream of, of orthodoxy or Masorti. Or, and, and then once you get outside of the major metropolis like where I live, there's no choice at all. So to me, what we see in Transparent is, is greater variety rather than dilution. Um, <laughs> Do you think we tend to make better subjects or creators of film and, and television? Both. I mean, beneath the surface. I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about was the book I've just edited called Hidden in Plain Sight. And if we take someone like Mike Lee as a Jewish creator, are Jews the subject of his films? Well, not explicitly, but beneath the surface, yes, they are. And as a creator, he makes excellent films that can be read on multiple levels. And as subjects... We're also interesting. Take films like A Serious Man or as, as, an, as an example, the Coen Brothers film. I think the problem is, is when people 
try to translate Jewishness to an audience they think doesn't understand Jews, and then they tend to make it cliched and, and stereotyped and very overcoded. Now, you know, a good example would be lots of what's appeared on British film and TV, where where we get these stock caricatures of the Jewish mother or Jews who speak like they just got off the boat, whether it's 1910 or 2010, whether they're 10 or 110. And I think the problem there is because we're, we're, we're still in that apologetic mode of trying to explain Jewishness to people who probably don't know much about it. Now, if we took a series like Transparent, I don't think that's trying to explain Jewishness whatsoever. There's a greater confidence running through it, I think. Excellent. And um, if we want to get a hold of your book, how do we do that? Is it out? Yes, yes, it's available on Amazon. It's available through the publisher, uh, Northwestern University Press, and their distributor in the UK, Eurospam. And hopefully I will be doing some more events in London, so people can come along and buy copies off me, which I'll sign. And just to give a plug for it, it is the first book of its kind to look at the contribution that Jews have made to British film and television from 1930s to the present. And this book only scrapes the surface. I mean, it's really, there's so much to study on this and it really hasn't been looked at in any depth at all and this book is, is an introduction hopefully it'll inspire more people to look at the, the contribution that we've made and it's been significant here people go on about American cinema but, but really we've, we've had a just as important contribution to British film and television as in Hollywood Professor Nathan Abrams talking to Kate Fulton there about his latest book Hidden in Plain Sight Jews and Jewishness in British Film, TV and Pop Culture In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze a reminder that we now live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime That all important address is coming up but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds and of course we'll try and read those comments out as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, in this week's edition of The Jewish News, you will find a superb supplement on the work that the Jewish Deaf Association does for the community. Well, here on The Jewish Views, we decided we wanted to find out even more about the organisation. And so community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Sue Sippin, the chief executive of the charity. Diana started by asking Sue to clarify why the Jewish community needs its own deaf association. The Jewish Deaf Association was set up to cater to the specific cultural needs of the Jewish community. So the same as there are other cultural organisations available for the Jewish community, this is one that specialises in hearing loss and it's the only one in the whole of the UK that has an understanding of Jewish culture. Now the deaf community are people who have been brought up as deaf, were born deaf and communicate using sign language. So they can't fit in in a regular community centre or in regular services because they communicate differently and they have a completely different culture, outlook and wavelength. So we were set up originally to cater for that specific community and those people are the people that use our community centre and our services day in and day out. Right, so that begs the question of British Sign Language. Does that not adapt itself to Jewish culture? 
it's not about the sign language being adapted to Jewish culture. It's about Jewish community like their own facilities, like Jewish care has its own community centres for the Jewish community. So the Jewish deaf community have a different culture to the wider deaf community because they are deaf they identify as deaf, but they also identify as Jewish. So they are a culture that is unique. That's very interesting. So the two run side by side, as it were. So we have services specifically for the Jewish deaf community, the signing community, and we are the kind of social services for that community because they can't access regular support and information and services because nobody has the communication skills or the understanding of their specific needs. So we provide support workers, for instance, that will accompany them, older people, for instance, to go to the doctor and to a hospital and to the bank and to a lawyer and to whatever it is that they need to do. Because as they get older and they need support, they can't go to regular hearing services. They need specialist services. So the, these people who accompany them would be proficient, would they be, in not only in the cultural needs, but in communications as well? Absolutely. So we're specialists in that. So we would make sure that, for instance, if somebody's in hospital, if they are an inpatient, we would make sure that we visit them every morning when the doctor's coming around to make sure that the doctor can understand what they would like to ask them and that we can make sure that they understand exactly what the doctor is telling them about their treatment and about their diagnosis, about what medication they need to take. And we also then follow it up by visiting them at home and making sure that they're taking the medication that they need because language is a real barrier. And people who, particularly people who are born deaf, have a problem with articulation, don't they? Completely. So some of the people that we are supporting who are now anything, mainly we're talking about people from about 60 to about 100. This is the older group that we're supporting. Oh, is it? Not younger people? Oh, I... gosh, yes. Oh, I but see. But this particular right. group that we're talking about at the moment, right. they didn't learn to speak the way younger people have had the opportunity to. Technology wasn't available. The awareness, the understanding, the equipment... It was a different world. They were brought up in institutions, sent away from their parents, sent away from their families, and they all grew up together. And the people that we're supporting in their later years all grew up together at the Jewish Deaf Residential School. How interesting. Yeah. So... You, in fact, are a, a tremendous prop for them. I don't, how would they manage without you? Well, absolutely. That's the question. How would they manage without us? And that's why, as they have grown older, we have had to change our services in line with their changing needs. So JDA, 25 years ago, was a social club and a community centre that people came along and organised their own activities. And now it's the sort of social services that they need to help them to remain independent for as long as possible. So does that mean that the younger generation, those below 60, for instance, don't need to call on your services as much? Well, we support families who find out that their baby's deaf. And now babies are diagnosed as deaf within hours of being born. Okay. And 90% of deaf babies are born to hearing families. So when 
a mum and dad find out that their baby's deaf, it's very possible that that's the first deaf person they've ever met in their life and they need somewhere to turn. And again, Jewish families need a Jewish organisation to turn to where they can be introduced to other Jewish families quite often nearby in the same area that they're living, where they can be maybe a few steps ahead of them and where they can show them that there's light at the end of the tunnel and that there is hope and their baby's going to grow up and have a lovely life and that it's not all over just because the baby's deaf. Indeed. Now, supposing people had not ever heard of JDA, how would they get in touch with you? Well, that's precisely why we are trying to promote our organisation at the moment because just as deafness is invisible, what I've been told is JDA is invisible (laughs) and we're trying to raise the profile of the organisation. And you have a website, I imagine. We have an updated website that shows all the different services that we provide and Everybody, without exception, tells me that when they look at our website and they see the range of services that JDA has on offer, they are really surprised because there is something for people of all ages, all types of communication, all stages of life. And whether it's somebody that has woken up with tinnitus or somebody who has found that it's more difficult to hear the television or somebody who has found out that their baby's deaf, whatever it is, there is somebody at the JDA that can help. Can help. That's wonderful news. Thank you very much indeed. Chief Executive of the Jewish Deaf Association, Sue Sippin, speaking to community reporter Diana Toman there about the terrific work her organisation does. If you would like more information, then you can either find the supplement in this week's Jewish News, which please do take a look at as it contains case studies as well, so you can see exactly who benefits from the work that JDA actually do. Or you can always go to their website, which is jdef.org. UK. The letter J, def, D-E-A-F, dot org, dot UK. And there you'll find all the information you need. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining me today is actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and Rabbi Morris Michaels. The subject today is based on an item we heard in the news with Viv a little earlier on. His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, went to visit his late grandmother's resting place near the Mount of Olives, following having attended the funeral of Shimon Peres. What with this being the time of year when we're supposed to visit loved ones' final resting places, we thought we might talk about Jewish cemeteries and what they mean to us. Tony, let's start with you. How often would you say you go and visit your late relatives? Probably once a year, unless I'm at a cemetery for a lavoya or a stone setting. My parents are in Bushy, and if we're there, then I go when I go there. So, But basically, it's really once a year. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it, at this time of year? Because the difference between Christianity and Judaism, and I was told this once by a Catholic priest, I went to a Catholic school, and the Catholic priest said to me, the difference between my religion and yours is that we worship death, you worship life. Mm. And yet, at the time of Rosh Hashanah, we all go to the cemeteries to visit our past ones, our loved past ones. 
And at the same time, we talk about asking the Almighty to put us in the book of life for the coming year. Yes. Rabbi Michael, you might be able to tell us some reason why this suddenly becomes so important. We have come to a time of the year when we begin to think about our immortality. Because, as you say, the Marceau incorporates into it, you know, who will live and who will die. That phrase is just so, uh, it's so poignant. Um, so we do believe, you know, we have to start thinking about our own mortality. And when we do that, it's an inevitability that we will also think about the deaths of those of our loved ones. And so visiting the grave at this time of the year is a very important uh, part of our tradition and custom. Laura, what's your view on that? Well, I'm not a big uh, cemetery visitor, to be honest. But when I think about it and when we start talking about it, I realise that when I think about the people closest to me who've died, which is my grandparents, because I'm lucky enough to have my parents still alive and healthy, I do think about them whenever we have major family occasions. And so this week I was at my mum's for Rosh Hashanah dinner and my parents are 87 and 91 and uh, hosted 20 of us for dinner on Sunday night. And I think then I think about my grandparents because we always used to go to Grandma Nathan, my mum's mum for dinner for Rosh Hashanah. And when I think about death, I think very much about how we continue to live the lives that those who have come before us have laid out for us. So dinner for Rosh Hashanah at my parents' house is very similar to how it was at my grandparents' mm. house. And I hope that when I take it over, then it will be similar again. And that my children will therefore be experiencing my grandparents, even though my grandparents died when the children were babies. So there's something quite comforting and quite positive about family occasions and how the people who passed away in families actually are still in some ways still around the table. Presumably that goes back to your great-grandparents and, and further back as well because you're repeating and repeating and repeating going down the line to today. Well, probably, except mm. that except I don't the remember them. And, all the other I, I don't, and I don't remember my great-grandparents. And my great-grandparents were the ones who um, came to Britain. So I suppose life was very different then, uh, whereas my grandparents were all born here. Uh, life is remarkably similar in many, many ways in terms of the family. Is it, is it just as comforting to go to the graveside? Do you think? Um, I'm not sure. For me, I like to think about the positive things about the lives of my grandparents. And I relate to that much more around the dinner table. Mm. And not only around the dinner table, I can look at my children and I can see my grandparents. And that, to me, also is how life continues. Yes, yes. Very interesting. When my mother died, which is eight, nearly nine years ago, my son wanted to take all the photographs and everything else. And we did a tour, a trip, round the cemeteries in London because I've got grandparents and uncles and aunts and they're buried in various places. And we just made notes because he wanted to do a family tree. That was very comforting. He felt comforted by that because he, he didn't know his grandfather, but he knew his grandmother. And he started drawing up a family tree. We haven't completed it yet, but... Uh, it was something very comforting about that as well. So there is comfort in death, although you're remembering life. It's very interesting you said that because there was a time when I thought that there's no point in going to visit a grave because the person that you loved and cared for is no longer there. 
they've gone on, mm. on and upwards, perhaps. But when my wife died, I do find immense comfort from going to visit her grave. And there have also been... One of the things that makes me very sad is that my parents are both buried in Zimbabwe and other members of family and also people that I know are buried in many different parts of the world. Mm. And I'm not able to visit, them, visit them. Yes, I think there is, for some people, a great degree of comfort in being able to go to the graveside because it's a place where one can have thoughts about the departed in silence and giving them their, your fullest attention. It's not always just silence because it's well known that many people go and talk to the person uh, of who's course, buried there. Of course, but uh, you, know, you don't actually have to go to the gravesite to talk to a person. Most of the people I know who have uh, been bereaved tell me that they still speak to their loved ones in their home or, or wherever. So that in itself isn't a good enough reason for going. But there are other people who actually derive a great deal of discomfort from being at the cemetery. It's a reminder of that death, which they'd rather not have. It's a horses for courses thing. I mean, I well, ever since I've been a rabbi, um, I've organised a trip to the cemetery for members of my congregation, if they wish to go. And a number of people will choose to go. It's a small number, always is. And I'm assuming that that's because they will get something very special out of going not by themselves, but going with others. And I think there is an element of, of togetherness that's important in this as well. I can remember my mother telling me when she was a girl, her mother, together with her mother's sisters, all used to go to their parents' grave. We're going back many, many years now, of course. And she said one of the things about it was it was like a family outing, that all the sisters came together. And maybe, you know, they didn't do that very frequently during the course of the year, but it was once a year when the family actually got together and they took great comfort from being together with each other at that time. Now, it's very interesting that you say that because in Singapore, and this is not Jewish, but in Singapore, the people who live there, there is a special cemetery which is fascinating to go to because in it there are the... I don't know if they're the ashes or if they're just words, but the names of the people who've passed are put inside little boxes. Mm. And once a year, all the people from there who have past relations in the cemetery are taken out for a picnic. And they all go and have a picnic together and have the remains of the dead person with them. Mm. And that sounds similar to what you were saying. But it's also celebrating the life of and the person, And it's celebrating the life, yeah. Well, yeah. Because we also yeah. do that by lighting a yachtsite candle. Of um, course, we're celebrating the life of the but, person. But we also do the togetherness piece with Yisko. And mm. our festivals, uh, at the last day of Pesach, the last day of Sukkot, Shemunyot, uh, on Shavuot and on Yom Kippur, uh, we have a Yisko ceremony where people can come together and I think, yeah. I, I think yeah. people do derive that comfort from being together with others. One of the things that it also reminds me of is sitting shiva. And in fact, after we finish here this evening, I'm going to a shiva for a friend whose mother has died. 
And this woman, I think, must have been well into her 90s. And I met her a couple of times, but I only met her as a very old lady. And what I'm looking forward to about going to the Shiva is hearing about her life. And when you go along to a Shiva, not only are you offering people the comfort of the group of people together, but you hear about this person, particularly with people who are very old, where you sort of never really knew that this was a, mm. a vibrant, exciting, dynamic mm. person. And, and it's terribly gratifying in a way. I, I always love to hear about the lives of these people and realise yes. that I'm always sad that I didn't know them when they were young. Isn't the shiver process just such a great thing, though? It's a marvellous thing. You know, because, because you, you, you've suffered grief and then you've got everybody with you and together and, and taking your mind off the grief. And, and you're given time to grieve, yeah. which, uh, unfortunately, so many people don't have that Well, non-Jews. Chance. I mean, often non-Jews it's don't. two to three weeks before they have a burial. Then, then you, you know, I know, I know non-Jewish friends of mine who, who think our process is absolutely brilliant. I've got one non-Jewish friend, since he's known me, lights a candle every year on the anniversary of his mother and father's death. There's another lovely thing. It's lovely, isn't it? Lovely is a strange adjective to use in this sense, but there's another lovely thing that happens when someone close to you dies, when you come back from the cemetery and chief mourners eat hard-boiled eggs. Mm. And I was told by a rabbi, and I think it's wonderful, that the reason why you eat hard-boiled egg is because it means life is It's eternal. circular, yes. That's it, right. circular. it doesn't end. Life has to continue. Yes. But, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't put in a, a sort of a pastoral word here, which is to say that wonderful as it is to go to the shiva and be with people, mm. you also have to remember that they need support the day after the shiva and the day after that as well. Yes, All too course. often, people are left by themselves after the week. So it's important to remember that uh, support is required for much longer than yeah, that's just very a week important. of and it's, it's, it's not just a week, it's, it's many months and Absolutely. sometimes even years. The life cycle Absolutely. is very interesting. I, I've just had a, my 11th grandchild this week on the eve of first thank you very much Um, so you know watching the kids grow up as well and all that sort of thing is is nice and that's part of again start of a new year start of a new life but there is there is a strange what's the word I can't think of the word but there's a strange mixture in Rosh Hashanah in that you're there thinking of the past the people who have passed and at the same time you're praying to the almighty asking for life for the whole of the new year. Mm. In a sense, it, it contradicts each other, doesn't it? It does. But no, it, it, it's very much in accord with the greeting that we often use when we go to a shiver house where we greet the mourner and we wish them a long mm-hmm. life. Now, you know, it's, that's exactly what it, we're saying with Rosh Hashanah. Although we have death around us, although we have death among us, we still know that life has to continue. Yes. And that, that is uh, the most important aspect of it. Yeah. yeah, life goes on. Life must go on. Yeah. We, we have people to care for. Uh, uh, we have people that want to care for us. So life must go on. I was just thinking about the society we live in where people are living longer and longer and where people's bodies are remaining strong very often, where their minds are getting weaker 
and thinking to the future and what sort of world we are going to be leaving our children and the amount of care they're going to have to be providing for the uh, increasing numbers of elderly people. Us elderly parents, yeah. yes. It's also the other way around, Laura, isn't it? Because I visited last month three centenarians, the oldest of whom was 108, and all three of them were totally bright with it, enjoying having conversations, talking about everything and so on. They were a little fragile, didn't hear quite so well, didn't walk around quite so well. So there is the the obverse of bodies being strong and minds not so much. Mm. It, it is can be the other way around. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a marvellous way in which to end our discussion. Thank you very much for that. Unfortunately, our time is up. But my thanks to our guests, actor and photographer Tony Honigberg, founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and Rabbi Morris Michaels. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, just before our rabbinic thought for the week, it's time now to hear from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips. Over the next couple of weeks, she'll be giving us some culinary ideas to try for the high holidays. And today she's got a delicious recipe for breaking the fast. Breaking the fast, and we really want a tasty cake. And this recipe ticks all the boxes. It is called a whiskey honey cake. It serves... 8 to 10 people and makes one large cake. Takes about 25 minutes to make and about 40 minutes to bake. What you need, and it's two sets of ingredients. We've got a whole batch of dry ingredients and a whole batch of wet ingredients. The dry ingredients is 450 grams of plain flour, a tablespoon of baking powder, teaspoon of barcarb soda, half teaspoon dried ginger, half teaspoon salt, one tablespoon ground cinnamon and one teaspoon mixed spice. So combine all those ingredients together in one bowl and in a separate bowl we are going to combine 200 mils vegetable oil, 340 grams of clear honey, 200 grams brown sugar, three large eggs, one teaspoon vanilla extract, 125 mils warm coffee, 120 mils apple juice, and 60 mils of whiskey. Your favourite, why not? So you've got the dry ingredients, the wet ingredients. Combine the two together. You're going to need either two loaf tins or one large cake tin. Line it with baking parchment paper. Preheat your oven to 170 degrees centigrade or gas mark three. And cook the cake for about 50 minutes. And once it's cooked, you're then going to make a whiskey syrup and this is made with 100 grams of caster sugar and 25 mils of water so boil this together on the hob so it simmers and then add a tablespoon of whiskey and while it's still warm pour it onto the cake just perfect to break the fast Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips there with a delicious recipe for breaking the fast And if you would like that, or indeed any of Denise's other great recipes, then just head to her website, which is jewishcookery.com. 
I should have mentioned last week that if you would like to send us the photos of your finished attempts at any of the recipes that Denise gives us on the show, then we would love to see them. I'm always worried myself that my culinary efforts won't quite match up to that of Denise's. But if you think yours might, or even if you just are prepared to give it a go, then please do send them to us. We'd love to see them. Studio at jewishviews.co.uk. And you never know, we might even put them on our Facebook page as well, with your permission. Studio at jewishviews.co.uk with your photos of your attempts at any of Denise's recipes. Well, now it is time for our rabbinic thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Stephen Katz from Hendon Reform Synagogue. This Tuesday evening, Wednesday, Kol Nidre Yom Kippur, we will come face to face with the depth and breadth of Jewish spirituality. With the Machsor, the prayer book in our hands, we will pray prayers, so many prayers from Tanakh, biblical psalmists, from Talmudic teachers, some PU team from early and late Middle Ages, and in the machs of the Reform synagogues, from British contemporary Reform rabbis, and also saintly Hasidic rebbes. Through these prayers we will glimpse the grandeur of God and the frailty, physical and moral, of humanity. Some prayers will remind us how far we have fallen, the Alchet, the Ashamnu, fallen from the moral standard set before us. Some parts of the service, Yom Kippur, Minchas, Haftarah, the book of Jonah, will remind us also how quickly we can rise, rise like the residents of Nineveh, recognizing our faults and failings, feeling profound regret, but also the genuine resolve to do better, to be better this Jewish New Year. Some will search for God in the Machsor, some will hear God through the familiar haunting melodies of the liturgical music. Others will discover God in the presence of a shul, filled wall to wall with fellow Jews, also searching for God, in themselves and in the depth and breadth of Jewish spirituality. Alice Walker in The Colour Purple has one of her characters say, Have you ever found God in church? I never did. I just found a bunch of folk hoping for God to show. Any God I ever felt in church I brought in. I think that all the other folk did too. They came to share God, not to find God. The Psalmists, the Paitanim, the Talmudic, Hasidic and contemporary rabbis have through their understanding of God and humanity shared God through their prayers recorded in the Machsor. When we enter shul this Tuesday evening, Wednesday, Kol Nidre Yom Kippur, let us take God with us. Opening our hearts and our lips to the prayers of our Machsor, but also our own personal heartfelt prayers. And when the final Tekiah Gedolah is blown, let us bring God back home into our relationships with family and friends. And let us take God to work and to our leisure activities in our relationships with colleagues and community. Gmar may we be sealed for a year of life, a year of good health, a year of refreshed and rewarding relationships. May we make it a Shana Tova. Thank you to Rabbi Stephen Katz from Hendon Reform Synagogue with our thought for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Sir Eric Pickles, Professor Nathan Abrams, Sue Sippin. Thanks also to the Schmooze team, Tony Honigberg, Laura Marks and Rabbi Morris Michaels. Also Denise Phillips and of course you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including those who helped produce this episode. Adam Bradley, Sue Greenberg and Bridget Grant.
You can always listen to the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, or you can hear any edition again in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. From the whole Jewish Views team, we wish you well over the fast and do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.